Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Today, I am joined by a wonderful co-host, an old friend, Dinah Lenny. She's a senior editor at LARB, the LA Review of Books, which I hear is a fine publication. She is also the author of several books, The Object Parade, Bigger Than Life, A Murder, A Memoir, and she also co-edited Brief Encounters, a collection of short nonfiction co-edited with the late Judith Kitchen. Welcome, Dinah. Thank you, Laurie. How are you? Good. It's so good to have you here. It's good to be here. We're going to talk with a friend of ours, John Romano, who adapted Philip Roth's classic 1997 novel, American Pastoral, for the screen. Dinah, did you read the book when it first came out? I did. I'm so glad you asked me to do this with you because I loved this book. Actually, the first thing I did was listen to the book. I listened in the car, and then I went back to it. It's a beautiful book. It's very complicated. It's very rich, and there are many, many characters. But John has kind of simmered it down to the story of a father and a daughter and a marriage. But it's contextualized in the 60s during the Johnson administration, so it's fraught with politics. The basic plot, just in case you haven't read it, which you should, or seen it, which you also should, the basic plot is that Nathan Zuckerman, who is kind of an avatar for Philip Roth, the novelist, goes back to his high school reunion after, I'm not sure how many years, I'm going to say 45, something like that. And at the reunion, he runs into the brother of a man who he and everyone in his high school class idolized, a football hero, last name Lavov, known as Swede. Known as Swede because he's blonde hair and blue eyes, and he doesn't look like any of the other Jews in the graduating class, which is part of the reason that everybody idealizes him. Everyone thinks he has the perfect life. He married a beauty queen. They had a child. And in fact, the life that he had was a living hell. And the movie tells the story of that life in which his young daughter, Mary, becomes a homegrown terrorist, a member of the Weather Underground, and is responsible for several bombings and murders. Not to mention the unraveling of a family and a community. And yes, it's just astonishing what goes south with, <laughs> with Mary involved. Yes. And that is the novel that Philip Roth wrote. And we will be talking to John Romano about his adaptation of that book. We are honored and thrilled to be talking to our friend, John Romano, who adapted Philip Roth's great 1997 novel, American Pastoral, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1998 and was recently released. I am here with Dinah Lenny. Hi, Dinah. Hi. Hi, John. And John Romano. Hi, Dinah. Hi, Lori. This is one of my favorite novels, and I think one of yours too, right, John? Yes, I've always considered it, first of all, I've always considered him our great novelist, and I've always considered this his best book. That was an opinion I had years before anyone asked me to look at it as a movie. And in fact, the oddity of this is that I read the book because it's a writer with whom I keep up, as it were, coming out of the English academic literary background into which nature fixed me. <laughs> uh, and I read the book and with great pleasure 
And it never occurred to me that it was a movie. And I'd already been a professional writer of movies and television for almost a decade at the time. When Paramount approached me to adapt it, at that time with Paramount became Lionsgate and the Lakeshore. When they approached me to adapt it, I thought I must be the wrong writer because surely <laughs> I, if I'm the wrong writer, I would have noticed when I read it if it popped up and said, hey, this is a movie. I, that thought never crossed my mind. But then being told, let's make this in a movie, what do you think? And I reread it with that in mind a bit skeptically. Mm. And then I saw it. It's just one of those moments. I suddenly knew, I thought, what to do. But why do you think it didn't occur to you from the outset? I'm curious. Well, because I have a very personal relation to this material. It's going to sound silly in some respects. I'm from Newark. My father was of that generation of Newark, sons of immigrants. Portner's Complaint was a book that, you know, I was a student and a teacher of 19th century fiction. And there were very few 20th century novels that interested me. And starting with Portner's Complaint, there were 10 by the same author. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, so I felt very engaged that way. And also his way of brooding about my generation, not his, in Mary. Mary is born the same year as I was, another uh, fortuitous uh, way of linking. As an adapter of novels, and I've done it before and since, you always try and find the respect in which that novel by him or her is yours. And these were coincidences that mattered to me. So I felt that I had all this sort of personal connection to it so that everything that's in that novel, which sprawls in many directions, there's sections about the home front during World War II. There's a lot about Jewish assimilation and Italian immigrants, such as my own family. There's a great deal about Jerry, his brother, played in the movie by Rupert Evans, in a much smaller role than the book allots Jerry. There's a great deal about Swede's time in the armed services, where he doesn't go to war, but he's a boxer. And all of that material, by the way, for the readers listening, is wonderful. So I, loving all of it, I knew from the craft that happens to be my own that the first thing that an adapter must do is to take a carving knife and slice off large chunks of material which you adore and which you think are wonderful, but you know are not headed for the screen that because they do not service that central emotional through line which is all a novel can ever offer an adapter of novels for the screen. And I knew that some of those, I mean, nothing in the book is irrelevant in one sense, but a lot of it was there in a wonderful way for its own sake. Not everything played into what I saw right away as the movie line, the central through line, which when I said I reread it and saw what the movie was, what I meant was that I saw this was a movie about a father and a daughter, a mother-wife jammed tragically and awkwardly in between the role that Jennifer Connelly plays of Dawn, And I saw that that was what made the novel universal. It's what looked back to Lear Cordelia and everything trans-temporal and trans-generational and international. I saw that the essential emotional global appeal of the novel and what, especially at a certain point in your life when you have children and no longer are one, keeps you a reading is this central dynamic. And anything that did not directly serve that dynamic was not going to make it into the script and therefore not onto the screen. And, you know, the leaving out business, as Ezra Pound called it, is really the heart of being an artist of any stripe, but it's especially the heart of being an adapter of a novel for the movies, because to do even remote justice to any of those 
things I mentioned, all of which I loved reading, would give you a movie that lasts 12 hours and gets through half the book. Well, probably more like 30 hours, because that's about how long it takes to read the book. We were up against two things. One is, obviously, you're adapting a 30-hour experience into a 110-minute experience, so of course you're carving out the part of the story that you can dramatize. And I thought focusing on the father-daughter was brilliant and paid off very well, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the other thing that you were up against was, of course, this novel is revered and people feel ownership of it. And anything that you change is going to rankle someone (laughs) because it is not the novel. It's just simply built into your trial in doing this is that people are going to be kind of against its very existence in a sense. Some people, obviously, not a majority, but it's the kind of thing that critics get, like they have to protect American culture or something. Do you feel that at all? Well, a lot. Actually, the problem is in some ways worse than you described. First of all, those things which we're talking about is so revered and so forth and beloved, they work for you too. Mm -hmm. That is, they actually invite people to the party in a way. Someone's making a movie from, oh, that favorite book of mine. But the truth about it that doubles the difficulties you so well described are that in its time, the book was extremely controversial. Roth is a controversialist. From the moment that people denounced Portnoy's complaint is anti-Semitism written by a Jew, Mm -hmm. which you will still hear because it really sails those early books and the Lou Lavov character played by Peter Riegert in this book. People respond to that as if it were a kind of ill-natured Molly Goldbergism. You know, it's it's, (laughs) there's some caricature of the uh, Yiddish-American immigrant style and, and mores. And that was not welcome. So on that level, alone. But there's another level in which the novel has always been uh, conscientiously reviled and resisted. And I ran into a number of academics, for instance, who said to me that they did not enjoy American Pastoral. They thought it was the worst of his books. And the reason was that, uh, quote unquote, and I'm quoting major, major thinkers in this area, Philip Roth didn't understand the 60s. By which, as usual, when people use that expression, didn't understand or don't understand, what they mean is they don't agree with me about the 60s. Exactly. um, Right. And what a number of people wrote to me who had something of a life in academics beforehand and kept up those friendships, they would write to me and explain, I hear you're undertaking American pastoral. You know, of course, that Philip Roth was vilely reductive of the beauties and complexity of the new left and of this gorgeous period that we spent in the late 60s, how can you participate in propagating his contempt for that moment in which, as Wordsworth said, it was bliss to be alive, right? And I think that that is also something that was facing the task of adapting, because as I guessed, and I often guess wrongly, Tuesday night being a good example, but I correctly guessed that people who didn't have the technical term is Koyanis to attack this great Pulitzer Prize winning novel would therefore transfer their criticisms of Roth's treatment of the 60s, for instance, onto the movie (laughs) and say that I didn't get Roth's treatment of the 60s right. Well, if anything, I softened his treatment of the 60s. But that's an area, in addition to the one you mentioned, Laurie, that people revere uh, Pulitzer Prize. Well, they also revere their memories of the Woodstock era, you know, <laughs> and they're very, I found in the critical response, aside from those few geniuses who had the wit and insight to realize it was a terrific movie, <laughs> I found, and I underestimated it, but I foresaw it, 
And I'm right in that generation. I was 20 in 1968, just like Mary. We're very romantic about our old vinyl record collections, our Beatles albums, the Che Guevara poster on the wall, you know, a trip to Woodstock. And it was all sort of sports sex and getting high. When you make a movie that points out, as we do from real footage and real radio recordings that we use, that in a 16-month period around 1970, 4,300 bombs were set off by the left in America. The death count is, given that number, remarkably low, but guess what? It was not for want of trying. The weather underground was not ISIL, but the two have something in common. The two could have dinner together yeah. on any given night. And what's on the wall there in Mary's room, which I was actually accused of making up, it's both in the book and it has a prior history where she says, we will loot and kill and destroy all that is good and decent in honky America. That was the weatherman slogan. And when we are doing our sort of late night reminiscences about how great 69 was and how come you can't get weed like that anymore, it's very good to remember that it had this profoundly ugly side in which homegrown terrorists did some looting and burning and killing, indeed, if you remember names like Kathy Boudin and so forth of related events, not that she herself is murdered, if you remember that period, it's very hard to be sentimental when you let that larger picture show. And no one wants to be brought back there under those terms. You're messing with their youth. John, I'm so curious to know, because you were working with a director, not only is he not American, but slightly younger, yes, a decade or so younger. What sort of a collaboration did you have here? How much were you pushing each other around? on, On every level, a wonderful and creative collaboration. And to the question, Ewan was so young in 1968. Well, Tolstoy wasn't even born when the, uh, <laughs> the march home from Moscow. Good point. Place. And we've still read War and Peace with a great deal of attention. And I think the truth is that given that we ask of ourselves, before Ewan was involved even, but it's certainly something that for the reason you mentioned, Donnie, he could identify with, because we had resolved to give the novel to the timeless, generationless drama of father and daughter and and wife and mother, there was an emotional through line available to anyone from any era. On top of which, it's very interesting, Ewan had a number of very personal connections to this material. For one thing, his wife, she's an intellectual whose family was always very eager that Philip Ross should get a Nobel Prize. While we were prepped for the movie, two of his daughters were bat mitzvah. I mean, he himself is a Scotsman and so forth, although you can tell by what I claim is a note-perfect New Jersey accent in the Uh movie, the one thing I really stood over the whole thing, like a wicked stepmother, making sure we got that right, was proud of my own New Jersey uh, slurs. But he identified with it because he is a deeply emotional filmmaker who comes out of deeply emotional films. He's a Danny Boyle protege, and that should pay it all to the film buffs in the audience. Emotion drives everything from wardrobe to catering to the big speech on page 20. So he connected deeply with the emotions of it. And as I said, we live in a time when the phrase homegrown terrorist has tremendous resonance. You only have to remember John Walker Lynn to move it from the 60s to 2004. And he'd already made train spotting by then. So that's a long defense of something I don't necessarily think needs a defense. But if it only speaks to people who were sitting around on sit-ins in 1968, like myself, then it's a much narrower book than no, I think I mean, I think it's sort of being. First of all, the weed is much better now than it was in the 60s, so there's that. <laughs> but also, um, right now when I'm talking to young people about how terrifying the present time feels, 
I remember that I lived through the race riots of the late 60s, and I lived in Baltimore. I was a child. It was terrifying. The idea that that was a simple time of love and peace, I mean, I don't know who would take that line. No, no, I stand corrected. It isn't that people remember it as a peaceful time. I mean, Kent State, the National Guard opened fire on four students, et cetera, let alone those who died in Vietnam, et cetera, or in racial strife in the South. What I meant was that for all that, we have nostalgized ourselves into a sense of good guys versus bad guys, in which we're very reluctant to say that anyone from the Port Huron Statement and SDS and Weathermen to the left, anyone who opposed that could ever be thought conceivably to be in the wrong. I should say we were very, very in the wrong. And their difference between contemporary violent resistors is a matter of debate. What you really have to know is that when Rita Cohn in the movie and in the book and the Surya Cohn scenes, if there was one place I was beyond faithful, I was literal. Yeah, that scene is incredible, John. Right, where the scenes where he's attacked by Rita on the street, you own your workers, you sleep with them, how much do you pay your workers in Puerto Rico, all that stuff, all that drivel, that should ring a bell. Right. And it should ring a bell with those in the audience yes. with whom one is generally sympathetic. And when she says to him, and he says, someone is dead. I want my daughter back. Someone was murdered. She says, do you know how many people have died in Vietnam while we're having this conversation? I think I remember saying that. Now, I was never a heartless, ruthless, radical killer, such as the movie portrays. But it's very important to remember that with certain kinds of rhetoric, and you might say it was just rhetoric, when the Rolling Stones say, now's the time for violent revolution, they are lining up with some people you don't really want to line up with, even if they do listen to the same bands that you do. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And I- no one wants to hear that. are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. This is Evan Kindley, a senior editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books. And I'm happy to welcome back Simon Reynolds, author of Shock and Awe, Glam Rock and Its Legacy from the 70s to the 21st Century. He's returned to the studio to recommend a book to us. I just recently finished a book called Beyond the Robot by Gary Lackman, which is a biography and a sort of biography of the ideas of this individual, Colin Wilson, a very prolific writer who is most famous for The Outsider, which was a sort of sensation in late 50s Britain and became an international bestseller. And what was interesting about him was that he was self-educated and actually finished the book. In order to have enough time to finish it, he lived outdoors in this park called Hampstead Heath, sleeping in a sleeping bag, and then he would write it by day to avoid having to pay rent so he didn't have to have a job. And he would write the book in cafes and public libraries. And it became a big sensation. But then almost immediately, his next book, there was a huge reaction against him and he was denounced as a charlatan by the very people who had raised him up. But he went on to write like a hundred books. Very prolifically, his next big success was The Occult, which came out in 1971. David Bowie, one of the things that made me interested in him was that David Bowie was a fan of both The Outsider and The Occult. And again, he was acclaimed for this enormous history and study of The Occult and the supernatural 
parascientific, paranormal ideas, a quarter of a million words long. So what interested me was the idea that he was this sort of self-educated, an outsider really, who never went through higher education, working class, and just became this sort of independent scholar and a cult figure. Gary Lackman himself, the author, is an interesting guy. He wrote a great book on the history of rock and the occult called Turn Off Your Mind. He wrote a very interesting biography of Alistair Crowley. He used to be in Blondie at one point. He's an interesting cat. He's written many other books looking at various aspects of spirituality and the idea of evolved human consciousness, which is the sort of running theme through a lot of Colin Wilson's work. And they were friends, so there's a personal element. It's a sort of biography of Colin Wilson's life. You learn a lot about his marriage and his struggles with money and and what he liked to eat, but it's also mainly about the evolution of his ideas, which get pretty wacky. You know, by the end, he's sort of subscribing to everything going, UFOs, the idea of Atlantis. He sort of has this arc where he's hugely respected, then he sort of goes out of fashion, then he's hugely respected again with this book, The Occult, and then he sort of really goes off the deep end and becomes quite a marginal figure, but still with this worldwide cult following. A fascinating book. In addition to the fact that Bowie, the main figure in my own book, was a big fan of Colin Wilson, what really compelled me about the story in a lot of ways was how prolific Colin Wilson was. As a writer, it took me like three years to write Shock and Awe. The fact that Colin Wilson could crank out sometimes three books a year and wrote well over 100 books in his lifetime, I was just staggered at how someone could do that. And so I was fascinated and almost sort of felt reproached by his productivity. The book is Beyond the Robot, a biography of Colin Wilson by Gary Lachman, recommended by Simon Reynolds, who is the author of Shock and Awe, Glam Rock and Its Legacy from the 70s to the 21st Century. Simon, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you. And now, back to our interview with John Romano, the screenwriter of American pastoral Philip Roth's classic novel. Another aspect of the movie that I'd like to talk about is, you know, we've talked about what you had to pare away, but also movies bring additional sensory information. And in this case, I thought that Dakota Fanning's performance as Mary, the daughter who becomes a terrorist, was so much larger than what I understood about Mary from the book. I thought that her performance almost took it to a kind of a spiritual level. I mean, she was beyond a disenfranchised child and citizen, beyond a war protester, beyond a terrorist. She was some kind of avatar of suffering from some other sphere of existence. Because of how deep her performance was, I thought, it lended a kind of a spiritual aspect to her story that I don't think was in the book. And that's one of the things that movies can do. And economically sort of laid in from childhood as well, with the little Marys adding up in terms of this kind of spiritual yes. tone. That yeah, was really well done. Uh, you got that done no, really quickly, I love, John. I love what you're—I'm absorbing the word spiritual, and I utterly accept that. I think it was very much—I don't remember the word being used on the set or in preparation for the movie, but it's very much what we were after. And let me respond in two ways to that. One is the performance by Dakota Fanning is stunning. As the movie finds, as it is finding, its smaller cult following. It's often Dakota that's in the lead paragraph. And the reason is, I think, because as you suggest, not only did Dakota beat the book, but she beat my script too. 
That's an expression we use about an actor who does better than the stuff you hand him or her. Mm -hmm. And this began for her with her undertaking the stutter. Now, when you're typing out a stutter, you just repeat that first consonant with little dashes, right? It's easy to find on the keyboard. When you say a stutter, and if you're asked as a professional actor to say a stutter, you've got your work cut out for you. It's very hard. And she and her team really bore down on this. There are many kinds of stutters, and they all have a different etiology. They all have a different genesis. Some of them are purely physiological. Others are psychological almost entirely, and many are a mix. And she went in choosing the psychological stutter and rehearsing and researching that. She kept it secret until the moment we filmed, by the way. We, we went to camera before any of us really heard the stutter she had worked on. The psychological stutter, as you could guess, represents a twisting of the emotions that your mouth can't find the words, I'm even saying it, I'm, I'm, I'm imitating it, can't find the words with which to express all that you're feeling as you look at Ewan standing there in the door with a plaque in his hand, or as you look at Lyndon Baines Johnson claiming to be an apostle of peace and, and justice, you can't find the words for what you see and therefore you stutter. That's way too simple. But the thing it resembles in actual clinical reality, and I became you know one of these 20-minute experts in it, and she spent a year on it, what it resembles is true. There's such a thing there. You're, you can't find oxygen because the, the emotions are tripping over each other and come too deep and too fast. And then you're really saying something with that stutter. And she very much wanted that stutter to be meaningful in just that way. So that, as you see, she uh, loses it when she becomes a Jane. In fact, this is all Ewan and Dakota on the set uh, one night. They decided that in that last stretch of the movie in which he visits her twice and she is a Jane, that she would stutter exactly once. That is when she, in recounting her history, and she's very clear that I don't stutter now. My stuttering was only a way of doing no harm to the air. She says that the one word she stutters on is Chicago because she was raped in -hmm. Chicago. So she says, I was raped in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And that was an invention that is not in the book. That is not in the script. It is a discovery by actor and director of the meaning of the stutter. And that meaning is psychological, I said, but now with your help, I would say spiritual. Because it's seeking for some release from, from pain. A pain that even proceeds, and this is very careful, both in book and movie, that proceeds seeing the monk who burns himself on television right, in Vietnam. Right. Even before that happens, in the same scene, in fact, she's on the floor. When she's asked, why are we here? She says, why are kangaroos here? Why are apes here? And then she's asked by the teacher, what is life? And she says, life is just a short period of time in which we are alive, stutters that. Now, that means that the spiritual grasping, the spiritual trouble has already begun. Right. And the spiritual ambivalence, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And spiritual ambivalence and an anxiety, a spiritual anxiety. And as, you know, any 20th century philosopher knows, spiritual anxiety is spiritualism. A fervent atheist has a relationship to God, you know, and And the spirituality of her part is very well named by you, God. Well, she introduces the idea that it could be completely rational to be extremely radical on this earth in this life. It's really just a profound performance by Dakota Fanning. John, since we are now talking after the election, we just wondered if you could, like, make us feel any better with some of your perspective. (laughs) (laughs) We're worse, John. (laughs) You can make us feel worse. That's a lot to ask. I'll I'll let you know when I feel any better myself. (laughs) 
But all I could say is this. The following will, I hope, be some part of some silver lining that should appear any day or decade now <laughs> uh, from Tuesday night. We're going to live with the worst of this for a long time. And I'm against any paragraph on the subject that begins with, oh, he may not be so bad. But, but I can say the following, and I happen to have the great pleasure of knowing both of you off, uh, I was going to say off camera, but you get it. <laughs> uh, and you know that I can be, and many of us are in our circle, very quarrelsome about little differences between how far liberal or left or who's going to be sort of a centrist or she's an extremist. or There's a lot of parsing of the ideologies that group us. And I think now that all of that is knocked into a cocked hat. Mm-hmm. And Roth was never there. Someone who thinks he understands Roth work, I'll make a declaration that might be proved wrong. He doesn't have an ideological bone in his body, and it's a great virtue. It enables his clear vision. Mm-hmm. Those of us who are bound to any ism, however clever and honorable and deep-rooted, are already half-blind. And I think that his ability to think apart from any dogmatic ways, so that he could see the 60s in a more clear-eyed way than anyone writing in the 1990s, on the right or on the left. I mean, the right had to condemn it from the moment it began. And on the left, certainly, we were already writing folk songs about our folk songs. Right. Roth, from the beginning, had, you can tell from this novel, no patience at all with isms and announced ideologies, which could lead confused, spiritually confused, young men and women to kill which is what happens in this movie. And he's very clear about that. And when she embraces Jainism, it's one more ism. And I stand with the Swede in his judgment about Mary, that she is sick in her body and sick in her mind and never sicker than when she doesn't stutter and steps carefully so as not to crush any bugs. That's how you know someone is dangerous and unwell, just as when they blow up a post office and kill somebody, you reach a similar conclusion. So I think what he offers for us is a place to stand outside our quarreling, chattering, cross-ideological tongues. And we need that very much now because Trump isn't exactly a National Review conservative, is he? He's something that stands outside and above that. I mean, well to the right, but also he makes all such reasoned arguments look silly. And, you know, he said an interesting thing in an interview years ago about moving from New York, where he lived for a long time in Greenwich Village. I think he still has a place there. But he moved to rural Connecticut, as everyone knows, for many, many years. And he said, one of the reasons he didn't like being in New York, I may get this a little bit wrong, but I think this part of this right, is because as soon as you open your mouth and express your opinion, you find you've joined a team. Uh-huh. And he couldn't stand that. He couldn't stand the idea that if I have a certain opinion about, you know, make it up, Israel, what happened in Baltimore, the moment that you express an opinion, we've got you. Okay, I see you stand with us, or you're the other guy, you're a conservative. From Roth's point of view, and from the point of view of a very noble tradition in letters, the moment we become an anything-ist, we think less clearly, we see less clearly, and our language loses its ability to parse and describe the world. And knowing me, you know that that's very much where I end up, and also fiercely loyal to the Democratic Party. <laughs> that being said, I think the book does offer that kind of bitter message. It also offers a response to Tuesday night in terms of its excellence, because I've been saying, friends are saying, oh, I'm joining this, and I'm marching on Washington, and I'm doing that. I'll probably go along with all of this if I have time. But I also say, I know what we should do about the election of Donald Trump. If we're poets, Write better poems. If you're a comic, Mm. tell funnier jokes. If you're a runner, take two seconds off your time. If you're a barber, clean that bit up around the ears. 
In other words, let's meet their mediocrity with our excellence. Let's meet their ignorance with our knowledge. And this book is excellent to its core. There's nothing that it looks at that it doesn't bring kind of laser-like clarity to. There's think, nothing it protects. I think that's true, John. And, and I think that everything feels different. And it feels like everything that we do is more important suddenly. I also think it's very, very important that we don't sentimentalize our own efforts. And I think that's what you're saying about Roth, is that never for a moment does he... Yeah, he never... He never, he never gets never sentimental. Nothing, it's as if you were to say, and by the way, I don't think the politics are the center of this novel. As you know, I think the center of this novel is a father-daughter relationship. I speak as the father of two daughters, Clarissa and Juliana. And I think politics are not the center. But if he says anything about politics, it's somehow along the lines that we're saying, nothing that Lyndon Baines Johnson does can justify what Rita Cohen and Mary Lavoe do. If you think that, you're just making another round of trouble for yourself and the world. But, you know, I think that's the occasion for Mary's illness rather than the subject or the cause If it wasn't the politics of the 60s, it would be something else with much deeper roots in the psychology of childhood and of child rearing. And, you know, there's something we really should get to in in that respect, because I get asked this a lot about the sort of meaning of Roth's uh, epic tale. And I always go back to a moment, as I tell the story a little bit out of school, there was someone who was going to get involved with the movie early on. I won't say whether a director or an actor or someone, but they did not stay with the movie. And it was because Mr. Roth reacted to an opinion of theirs. They had the opinion that Mary is the kind of kid she is, the angriest kid in America, as the book says, because of the mistakes he made in childbearing, specifically in this case, that he didn't keep her close enough to her Jewish roots. But whatever reason that person, (laughs) uh, you know, that he married a shiksa and she was raised outside the family. Whatever reason he might have given, I too think that's off point, but the point is, whatever reason, however intelligent the reason, what Mr. Roth said and listening to this fairly reasonable point of view, he said, that's wrong. You don't understand my book. I wrote the best man and the best father and the best American and the best citizen and the best husband, I'm adding now, that I could. But shit happens. If you don't think so, read the book of Job. And instead of read the book of Job, he sent me right to the heart of American pastoral. And there was a passage we did not keep because we did not want a voiceover in the body of the movie. We just wanted David Strathairn's lovely baritone at the beginning and the end. Yeah. And I relish it. But when we were playing with some moments along the way when we might hear from Zuckerman Strathairn, there was one thing I'll always miss. It comes in what many of us thought of as the nadir of his experience. He's sitting in the train station where he's gone to hopefully find Mary, although she hasn't been seen there for months. Hopeless that task is. And he sits in the train station and he sits and he collapses into his own hands. And Ewan's brilliant at that moment. And we, for a moment, we were going to put there one of the book's classic lines, which is, life had taught the Swede the worst lesson it has to teach, which is that it makes no sense. Uh-huh. To those of us who share a sense that life is glorious, life is fun, wow, I had a great time last night, and I look at the sunset and all that stuff, but life makes no sense, then politics take a very different place in our lives. You know that it's not the fixing of what's wrong, because what's wrong, the fundamental absurdity of existence, cannot be fixed by electing X versus Y. Right. Uh, next time around, let's elect the right person, by all means. Right. But if your fundamental sense of the universe is that of the book of Job, that the universe is going to rain down its turds upon your head, however well you live, 
then you can relax a little about having made this or that wrong turn, marrying outside the faith, or yeah. not buying enough green stamps or whatever. Yeah. John, so just veering off for one minute, because I know we're taking a lot of your time here, but just talk a little bit, just for a minute, about the triangulation, the mother-daughter-father, because I just would love to hear your take on the Jennifer Connelly sort of Dawn performance and, and that part. Yeah, yeah. And, Let me just say that I've been doing this quite a while in spite of the youthfulness of my voice. Your, <laughs> your listeners would be surprised to hear that I'm not as young as I... I, I know you've dated yourself already. <laughs> but in all that time working in the business, I have never had a more pleasurable and interesting experience than I did with Jennifer Connelly. You know, I came out of teaching and she was a Yale English major. And when we'd worked in the book, partly because I wasn't the director, I was the writer. She never wanted to talk about her part. I'm not sure how much she needed from the director either there. It wasn't privy to that. But she wanted to talk about the book. And we had deep conversations about the book. And naturally, being a mother and a woman of the 21st century, mm-hmm. she naturally wanted to talk about the subject of Philip Roth's female characters, yes. not only in this book, but elsewhere. And she wanted very much to represent a dawn of whom all of us, Philip Roth, myself, you and, and herself, could be proud. And we came to, or she came to, a take on this character. It's funny, she wasn't interested in being necessarily meeting every point of description the book had to offer, such as the fact that she's a plumber's daughter from Elizabeth. She wasn't worried about that kind of thing. It's, I guess, come second nature to someone with her degree of craft. But what she was interested in was how one reacts, person, whatever gender, reacts to the kind of news that Dawn faces. You've been told that your child has done this. And she gave us such an impassioned and deep and personal and emotional response to scene where she stands in the middle of the room after she hears a news report saying the police are widening their search for Meredith LeBob, the so-called room rock bomber, mm-hmm. and Ewan turns off the radio so that she won't have to hear it. By the way, I don't mind saying not in the book. <laughs> she stands right. in the middle of the room and she says, I want her to come home right now. 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 I want her to come home right now. Right now. And she burns in that scene. She reaches emotional levels that I hadn't seen before. And the heartless Ewan McGregor made her do it five times. And, but it did feel very true. It felt Without mu- calling cut. So she had to go back to the beginning of that without calling cut, no release, so that she became more and more frayed. And she went all the way there. And the point of this is the following. She wanted to sell, to use the Hollywood jargon, she wanted to be convincing about how pained she was about what had happened to Mary and to her and to her daughter so that when, at the end of the day, she quits on the whole damn thing, when she can't go the distance that Swede wisely or not goes for the rest of his life and virtually kills himself with pointless, aimless, hopeless suffering over his daughter, uh, the girl who, as Roth and I say, was not worth it from anybody's point of view, did not deserve it of anyone. When she gives up on that and says, I'm changing my face, I'm changing my loves, I'm changing my house, I'm changing my life, I'm selling my cows, when she does that, What was important, I don't mean to speak for her, but my impression in working with her and seeing the work is that she wanted to have earned that moment so that when she gave up, we said, yes, please, by all means, you cannot go further down this road. No one can. And so that there's something almost beyond heroic, a little strange and spiritual in its own way about the Swedes continuing to worship at that altar. As Dakota's character says, how long are you going to hang on to the myth of your innocent child? The movie's been telling you for the last half hour that it's pointless and mom is way ahead of you. Yeah. 
mental illness yeah. as a way of producing more mental illness. I mean, yes, yes. And guilt where you have done. So if we believe how much she loved her, which I do in every frame, then you believe how much she hurts her. And then you believe that when she gives up on her, it's because she must and because she kind of ought to. Right. And that's only one way of looking at it. But it's much better than reading Roth or me or the seeing the movie to say the guy is a hero, but the mother just gives up and goes and gets laid and changes her, you know, course, yeah. changes her cheekbones. But that is a reaction one could have. And risking that makes Roth brilliant. Right. Because nine writers out of ten would have sought a kind of fallacious, equality, right? An equivalence, right. especially in 2016. Write a novel now, and you will be asked by everyone, from your agent to your editor, to the reading public, to the critics, to make sure that the woman is strong. Well, Jennifer's Gone is very strong indeed, but the universe is stronger. <laughs> yeah, very well put. Thank you, John, so much. And we encourage everyone to go out and see American Pastoral um, Especially now. And probably soon to rent it or see it however you can. Thanks, John Romano. We very much appreciate it. Thank you, John. What a pleasure. What a pleasure. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. And now it's time for a little poetry. Here is this week's classic poetry drop. This poem is called Eating Poetry by Mark Strand, written in 1979. A very upbeat, funny poem, particularly for Strand, who writes about isolation a lot and absence and negation. One of his most famous poems, Keeping Things Whole, I say the first line to myself all the time for no reason, which is, in a field, I am the absence of field. But anyway, this poem... That's so sad, Lurie. Thank you. But this poem is funny and upbeat. Eating Poetry by Mark Strand. Ink runs from the corners of my mouth. There is no happiness like mine. I have been eating poetry. The librarian does not believe what she sees. Her eyes are sad, and she walks with her hands in her dress. The poems are gone. The light is dim. The dogs are on the basement stairs and coming up. Their eyeballs roll. Their blonde legs burn like brush. The poor librarian begins to stamp her feet and weep. She does not understand. When I get on my knees and lick her hand, she screams. I am a new man. I snarl at her and bark. I romp with joy in the bookish dark. Eating Poetry, Mark Strand. Just a poem about the joy of reading and also of going against conformity, wouldn't you say, Tom? Yeah, I, you know, you said it was light and funny. Yeah, the I know. I'm, I rethought gone. that myself. Yeah, and the light is dim. Let's just say it's light and funny for Mark Strand. Right, okay, good enough. That was Eating Poetry by Mark Strand, read to us by Linda Belgord from the collection Poetic License. Come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, 
Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'd like to say thank you to John Romano, screenwriter, and to my wonderful co-host, Dinah Lenny. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 